When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Well, my shoes, they come from Singapore. My flashlights from Taiwan. My tablecloths from Malaysia. My belt buckles from the Amazon. You know the shirt I wear comes from the Philippines, and the car I drive is a Chevrolet. It was put together down in Argentina by a guy making 30 cents a day. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining us this week to talk about Union Sundown from 1983's Infidels is returning Bobcat, Matt Simonson. Hi, Matt. Welcome back. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. I thought... Any man that can do an hour with me on Handy Dandy, <laughs> not that that's not a great song. We both love that song. But <laughs> I think when, when you pitched that to me, I thought, well, this will be on the shorter side uh, of the episodes, and that's fine. But any, any man that can do an hour on Handy Dandy at the very least deserves a return appearance. To say nothing of the fact it was just fun talking to you and everything else, but just, just for that alone, you deserve to come back. So I'm sorry it took so long to finally get you back on the show. Yeah, no problem. It uh, took a worldwide shutdown and a global plague to uh, keep us apart, but I'm glad that we're back together finally. We, we did it. We kicked, we kicked COVID's <laughs> ass. So, oh, I should never say that. I'm really tempted to pay. So, okay. Uh, we're here to talk about Union Sundown, a song that is, I don't know, maybe kind of has a mixed reaction by a lot of uh, Bobcats. I think it's probably safe to say. Uh, would, I'd go further. No, I would say that it's not a mixed reaction. I would say it's mostly universally loathed. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to get and, that far at the top of the show. But, okay. Well, I remember when I sent you my list, you said, uh, yeah, let's do Union Sundown because uh, nobody ever asked for that one. So, it, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, okay. Well, where, where do you want to start on this, Matt? Where, well, what, what, yeah. Why? Uh, why Union Sundown? Well, I thought a lot about. Uh, why I like it and why other people may not like it. So I thought the easiest thing for me just to start with, let's start with some praise. I love the sound of this song. So if you listen to this song, and I hope after we get done, we've given people some things to think about, uh, maybe a new way of appreciating and looking at the song and Dylan's intentions. And you can just listen to the sound again with maybe a new appreciation. We'll We'll have done our job today. But I think this is one of the most rocking songs on what is my favorite period, uh, the Infidels songs. Uh, it's got that echo effect that I think is pretty unique. I, I believe it's the first official uh, duet with Clyde King, the two of them on this song. I know that there are some new songs where they uh, are duet that are now officially released, but I think this was the first one. I think the hook on this is just terrific. And if you listen to uh, the three musicians that are really um, prominently displayed here, you have uh, Mick Taylor's slide guitar uh, sounds really, really good on this song. Mark Knopfler's guitar and his distinct style, which I love, is is just in perfect uh, tandem and harmony with Mick Taylor. And then you have Alan Clark uh, banging away on the piano, and it's just a kind of a raucous sounding tune, and it it just catches me and. Um, on the uh, bootleg series that just came out, there was an alternate take. Yep. And um, if you have some other bootleg albums like Rough Cuts, there's a third take that is 
must be one of the first ones because it's just instrumental and Bob's just kind of humming along a little bit during the verses and then he sings the chorus and you can really just appreciate the quality of the tune you know, it's a toe tapper so that's the easy one I, I just love the sound of this one and so uh, when I listen to music uh, especially Bob Dylan it's usually the the sound of it that gets me first and then on repeated listens you know the lyrics start to sink in and marinate a little bit and I come to appreciate the song in a different way so I was really surprised when you know, I join the online communities and talk to people, and I see this one, a neighborhood bully, listed as just absolutely awful songs on a on what otherwise would have been a great album. So, I think I have some ideas why that could be. Um, one is that um, people hold it accountable for Foot of Pride and Blind Willie McTell not being on the album. Yes, that's. I, I think that's <laughs> that's part, supposedly. That the when yeah. the original lineup of of infidels uh, comprised, of course, Blind Willie McTell and Foot of Pride, and then Bob went back in post Mark Knopfler and rejiggered the album, pulled those two songs, and added this one. Now, whether it was a direct one to one like that, like whether he literally was like take these two off and put this one on, it or or it was more of a of a continuum. I guess we'll never really know. But yeah, I mean, any, <laughs> I mean, any one song that tries to take the place of Foot of Pride and Blind Willie McTell, <laughs> that's a song that's got an uphill climb ahead of it. Yeah, and to me, though, and Union Sundown is not a better song than either of those two. And those two are, I would say, in my top 10 all time of Dylan songs. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember in uh, the Behind the Shades book, uh, Clinton Halen said it would be as if uh, Bob pulled Visions of Johanna and Stuck Inside a Mobile off of Blonde on Blonde and Stuck, If You Gotta Go, Go Now on the record. <laughs> and I, I think that's pretty apt comparison there. Uh, so, so that's one thing. I think there are the two other things. Um, you know, one is that um, this is one of those what I call list song where it's mm -hmm. um, kind of generic lyrics for some parts of it, kind of like uh, All I Really Want to Do or Parts of Gotta Serve Somebody rainy day women where you could really substitute anything yeah. um, in those. So the, the stone you win a, the stone you win B, the stone right. you win. C. I mean, he can mix it and match it in concert and does it to great effect. Um, and one, one song I know you like is everything is broken. And I think right. there's a lot of similarities between union sundown and everything is bro broken in terms of how they're composed and also how they evolved. So the finished version that exists of everything is broken great sounding song great hook must be fun to play it's a little bit generic a little bit of a list song and then you look at some of the alternate versions and some of the more detailed verses of everything is broken he left a lot of really good things out of that song he sure did you know the wine women and song can live without the first two without the third you can't live long um you know, how, amazing. How, do, how do you amazing. leave that <laughs> That's, that's God-tier level <laughs> lyrics, and you leave it, it out is. of the song. It's, it is. And, and so Union and Sundown, while probably not at that level, in the alternate lyrics, which we'll get to, you know, has some of that involved. But also some of that did survive into the finished song. So it's got a little bit of a list song, which I think people tend to discount. Mm. And so the third thing, uh, and this is, um, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but um, I think that uh, if you did a Venn diagram of Bob Dylan fans and political affiliation would probably lean 
more to the left. And <laughs> sure, yeah, safe to say. Yeah. And uh, with a lot of the reviews that I read for Infidels, just kind of checking in, you know, what did people think of it when it came out? There was a lot of complaints, um, even people saying this was cranky neoconservative Bob Dylan. Um, so I think that's probably another reason why this doesn't um, hit the sweet spot with a lot of people. And again, I think Bob's had that kind of familiar relationship with with the left, you know, from the folk days to going electric, that uh, somewhat betrayal, and obviously the years preceding this with the uh, the born again period. And even coming out of this, you know, I think there are a lot of those you hear, you know, this is a repudiation of the Christian period. This is Bob getting back to his roots. Uh, um, and then there's some troublesome songs on there that kind of conflict with that desire to have him, you know, back on our side, or we got Bobby back again, kind of mentality. <laughs> so I think you add all those things together um, and, and you get a song that people just want to skip. And they just want to write it off. And, you know, this is Cranky Bob, and we don't want to discuss those. So when we uh, get into the lyrics, um, you know, I have a, some thoughts about Bob's intentions, which is always dangerous, right? Um, right. But, <laughs> but I think I needed to, to understand, you know, what did he see in this song? What was he trying to get to? Why did he feel that this message was important? And the conclusion I reached is that, if you look at Union Sundown in isolation, uh, you're going to miss the uh, bigger picture of which this is a part. And I think this is a very vital part of the bigger picture that he was trying to tell on Infidels, um, but I'm not sure that he completely succeeded. So in other words, he may have reached too high and was thrown back to the ground. <laughs> Well done, well done. I like that. Uh, by by the way, I mean, now we've talked about it, but like, can you imagine Infidels ending the way it was supposed to with Foot of Pride? Oh, can you yes. imagine what a song, what an album closer that? I mean, the man is great at album closers. We've talked about that as well. Mm -hmm. Like, he manages to find great songs to wrap the record, whether it's Desolation Row or uh, you know, or Froggy Went a Court and for Pete's Sake or Lone Pilgrim. I mean, to do even the covers records, ending on Foot of Pride would have just people would have just laid waste to your listeners and people would have been like holy shit this is what did i just hear that was the fun he's done the album's done like that's what you're gonna leave me with um so yeah i agree um and it's sort of funny that you know that a song like this could be you know kind of gotten kicked around by fandom and it's only a fandom that is that plugged in no pun intended to <laughs> to the inner workings of the man's creative process you know, a lot, the average person doesn't know any of this. You know, they only approach the song on its own terms. They don't know that he left it off, left some other track. You know, that's for nerds like us to obsess right. over. Right. Um, but that's, you know, we're here and that's what we do. I do wonder if part of the reason this song suffers from, as you say, it's kind of, you know, it's really relatively universal disdain is that it's, one too many songs like this on the record. Like if this had been on Empire Burlesque, would it have been regarded as a little less annoying? Because I feel like when you when you already mentioned it, paired up to Neighborhood Bully, and there's even the line about in License to Kill, which is the the man has invented his doom. The first step is touching the moon, which mm -hmm. people are like, what? You yeah. know, like what does that mean? You know, what are you talking about? And and 
you know, Bob, musicians that tackle real world issues, it's scary because they can come across like they're dilettantes. Like they're just kind of meandering in to this issue with not a lot of knowledge and sort of saying a bunch of stuff that sounds a little silly. And then, you know, going back to their millionaire mansion. And that can be, that can be a real double-edged sword. And I think that a lot of people get on him like that for neighborhood bully, which is a song we have yet to get to, but then here he is kind of doing it again on another issue, just a couple songs down on the record. And you almost wonder, would this have come off better if neighborhood bully wasn't on the record or vice versa? If this had been moved on to the empire burlesque. Um, I do think it is in terms of a tune. It is really memorable. Now is that, um, is that Knopfler's lead guitar, right? So is that him? Doing that, is that is that him playing that that riff? Because that's really catchy. Yeah, it's Mick Taylor's on the slide, and then that's Mick, okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really memorable rocking tune. It is, it is, uh, and and so you brought up a good point, and I think this is one of the things. If you kind of go up a level out of the song and into the album itself. Uh, one of the criticisms is people feel it's all over the place and they really have trouble trying to understand what he's trying to say. You know, it's like trying to nail jello to the wall. You just, you just can't do it. And it's like some songs are seemingly about religion. Some songs are seemingly around you know, global trade. Some are around geopolitics and war. Others are around, you know, man, woman relationship. Um, and then, you know, blind, willing to tell dealing with, you know, the history of America and slavery, foot of pride dealing with, you know, his frustration, uh, with, uh, organized religion and, and people look at this and it's a little overwhelming and it's just like, good Lord, he's throwing the kitchen sink at us here. <laughs> like, pick, pick, pick a topic, Bob, and go into depth in it and, and, you know, serve it up so that we can just enjoy an album full of uh, songs about one thing or the other. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's one of the reasons why this is um, difficult for people to engage uh, with the album. And, and when I talk about the album, we might as well just include the, you know, the infidels extended universe here <clears throat> of all the good outtakes that he, that he left off. Because I do think um, I have a view of what, you know, where he was in his life and what he's trying to do. And I think for me, you know, why I really got attracted to this era is that I, um, over the last couple of years, been roughly the same age that he was in this period. So I like to, like, as I assume all Dylan fans like to do, is kind of look at where I am in my life and think, what was Bob doing when he was my age? You know, and then after you lick your wounds a little when you realize all the accomplishments that he has under his belt at your age that uh, you don't. Um, and you start to look at some of the normal things he was coping with. You know, you realize that, you know, this is, you know, a human being, you know, this is uh, as a father, a friend, uh, a son, um, you know, husband, uh, a, a working professional, all, all of these things are, are true for him um, to maybe a different degree uh, than they are for some of us. But humans are humans for the most part, and we tend to have similar experiences throughout the stages of life. You know, um, you know, as a child, as a you know, teenager, young adult, um, you know, middle age, and older age, it's not too different. Um, some of the more realistic things that we go through, and I think at this age, um, it's kind of special. You know, when somebody's in their late thirties to early fifties. 
you know, it's a period where they're experienced working, you know, they're somewhat on their own. They, they may have dependents, whether it's spouse or children or elderly parents, you know, they may be dealing with some midlife issues of, uh, you know, you know, misguided youth or, um, uh, lost dreams or concern about the future of themselves or their family or their country. And what most people tend to do is they, you know, they think about all these things and try to figure out, you know, what, what is the cause for Bob specifically coming off of that religious period. He was all in on the second coming imminently. And the joy that you could hear in some part, had to have come from the fact that he thought I can leave all of this other stuff behind because there's nothing more important than what's coming. And it will absolve us of all these other things that we worry about today. And when I hear foot of pride, I, I, I hear a lot of the frustration. It's that acknowledgement that, hmm, it's not as imminent as I once thought. <laughs> and I'm left to deal with all these you know, human realities that we would otherwise not have to want to deal with. And so then that shift from, you know, acknowledging problems. If you look at some of the songs on street legal, you know, when he's like no time to think, he goes through the litany of it, you know, <laughs> socialism, <laughs> communism, all the, well, I mean, he's aware of all these things, right. But then he gets into that religious period and, you know, he's okay because he knows there's something better coming pretty quickly. Um, in the infidels, we're no longer there. He said in an interview um, around this album that he doesn't feel that uh, he said he still believes in the book of Revelation, literally believes in the Bible, but that, uh, you know, Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon uh, is not coming anytime soon. And he says we have at least 200 years, which he would understandably um, realize is beyond his lifetime, meaning that he's going to have to deal with some of these things that are now confronting him. And so when you when you um, look at this album, I heard somebody once say it's like uh, you know the stuff that your dad used to complain about with your uncles at Christmas parties and stuff, <laughs> like, you know, price of gas and these politicians <laughs> and the you know, young kids today doing this and that and you know these foreigners doing this and you know he kind of has that grumpy old old dad um, uh, attitude to the album. Um, and where I get with this when I really start looking into it is that Bob is at the infidels level really trying to figure out what's going on with society. And you know that he originally thought about titling the album Surviving in a Ruthless World. Sure. And when we get to our age, you know, we, we kind of get past the trap that a lot of people in academia find themselves in, in which they pick a discipline and they go very deep within that discipline, but they don't always go horizontally into other disciplines to understand interplay, overlap, dependency, or borrow learnings or models from the other disciplines. So as an example, uh, e economists uh, will try to describe everything in economic terms. And in order to get around the peskiness of human nature, they invented something called the rational man theory, which states that a person will always rationally make an economic decision that's in his own best interest. And by making that assumption, it allows them to 
create these wonderful theories with math mathematical certainty that aren't bothered by people doing things illogically or in the heat Lord. of passion or for the sake of revenge, right? And all the disciplines yeah. in academia are somewhat uh, guilty of that. Did that turn but, out not to be true? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Holy Mac. <laughs> oh, so when I look at infidels, Rob, I see Bob continuing his search for the truth post the imminency of the second coming. And he's saying, the society we see, I have some problems with it. And I see some problems economically. I see some problems politically. I see some problems in terms of uh, the relationship with nations. I see some problems with religion. And I see some you know, uh, sexual or social issues that exist today. And they're all blended in. Bob does one thing really, really, really well. And that he's that melting pot. He can take all of these different things and put them together and form uh, a, a more comprehensive view that incorporates all of these different ideas and disciplines. And I think that's what he's trying to do here with infidels is he's saying, you know, this isn't just a religious problem. This isn't just a political problem. This isn't just an economic problem. Sure. He has songs that feature one of those more than the other, but right next to, you know, like blood on the tracks, or uh, rough and rowdy ways where there's a lot of intertextuality. Infidels is loaded with intertextuality. You, you have all this bleed over, all these songs that uh, you know, will drop a line or two about politics in a song that's otherwise about religion. You know, whether it's uh, you know, the retired businessman named Red, you know, the devil. Well, he's also a businessman. Great. Um, and in uh, you know, Foot of Pride, or excuse me, in uh, Union Sundown, he talks about capitalism, but then he also has um, some lines in the alternate where he's talking about a man in a mask in the White House. Oh, man, that's and, an amazing yeah. section of that song. And so, um, and I know we haven't really gotten into the guts of Union Sundown yet. Uh, we'll save that for hour two. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, my, but my thesis is that Infidels is Bob's attempt to take all of the big contributors to our society and explain and give his view of what's going on as only he can and put it together and then try to paint that picture of the world that he sees, which is a ruthless world. And as he does, uh, he's going through it trying to survive. Hmm. And so he changes the name of the album from Surviving in a Ruthless World, and he calls it Infidels. And uh, in one of the interviews that I was reading, um, the guy asked him about the title and he said, uh, well, you know, aren't you kind of worried about that dour look on your face and the fact that you're calling infidels? Aren't you worried that the fans are going to look at this and say, is he talking about us? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think there's some truth to that. I, I don't think people love finger pointing Bob when he's pointing at someone else, but they, Oh yeah. They, they don't want to be in front of the finger. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It's a Bob, get him, but, and then he says something, <laughs> About your your favorite Bobby yeah. Horst. He's like, whoa, Bob. Whoa, wait a <laughs> <Exactly>. minute. Yeah. <laughs> what are you Yeah, I mean, I've never fully understood and maybe what you know, by the time I got to this record, this would would have been in the um the early nineties when I was, you know, devouring all of his records, uh, you know, at a at a at a fast clip. You know, I came of a certain age where, you know, unions were um I, you know, I grew up in a relatively moderately conservative household. 
Uh, my father voted Republican his whole life until from 1952 all the way until 2004. Uh, and then he flipped. But, um, you know, I grew up in a relatively, you know, again, conservative household and I had my own ideas. But and, and you know, the union, the union, a union as a concept always seemed like a good idea to me. You know, like, well, no, workers need protections and workers need uh, to be able to uh, be able to bargain fairly when they're bosses. And, and, you know, it always made sense to me. And, you know, this song for the most part is actually, you know, very pro union, you know, and then there's just that one little section that is also pointing out, well, the unions have some problems too, which they do because everyone does. There's, you know, there's no, and if any, you know, as we know from other songs, Bob, one of Bob's major concerns in songwriting are his power structures. Mm-hmm. He's distrustful of any lopsided power structure in, in any context, it's politics, religion, relationships, social. He doesn't like an imbalance of power. And I don't know. It seemed when I, when I got to the song and I was, you know, I didn't know really much about the, the politics of it, but it seemed relatively fair to me that he was sort of bemoaning the fact that so much stuff has been outsourced to people making very little money because that's the way to lead to profit. But then there's also a little side of like, well, you know, but okay, but unions also sometimes get a little out of hand and there's the whole bit about, you know, you, you, you can't even have your home gardener. It's going to be against the law. And I thought, well, he's okay. He's, he's, he's holding up uh, uh, this, this, you know, topic as if it was an object and he's shooting all the light through it. And we're seeing all the different prisms. That seemed relatively fair to me, and I don't, I didn't understand why it was so sort of. Then when I went and did readings, so dismissed as just, well, this is just, you know, yeah, it's old curmudgeonly, Bob. But it's like, I, but is it? That seems like a not way to really engage with it then, because it's like, well, is it fair? or Is it unfair? <laughs> relatively fair to me. Yeah, it, it makes you think. So, like when Rob, when you put on Idiot Win from 1976, or you <laughs> listen to. Um, foot of pride. I mean, it's a roller coaster ride, right? I mean, you just, you buckle up and then you just go for it. I just steamroller that thing and it's one direction and you're aligned with it and it's an awesome ride. And this one, it's herky jerky because like you said, you start down one path if you have, if you have a view and then it kind of hits you from the side with like, well, well, that was unpleasant. That's, you know, that's not consistent with what you were saying before. It's it's a much more nuanced song than it appears on the surface. And I think, as you said, I think people do have more of a problem engaging with it just because it's not what they're expecting. It's a rocking tune, so you think you're going to, you know, just put the pedal to the metal. And then when you start listening to some of this stuff, you know, it kind of interrupts your enjoyment of the music a little and makes you think a little bit. And you're like, well, how does that fit into this and and you're exactly right because um you know you look at how the world works uh, i always use the analogy uh, that it's like a pendulum like everybody wants it you know to be in the middle uh to have some calibration and you have all these people that are pulling it to their side and letting it go you know and they'll swing maybe too far to one side and then there'll be a reaction and people will pull it maybe too far to the other before it gets too far and if you look specifically at unions, um, absolutely, there was a need for a union with uh, some of the mistreatment of labor in the 1800s and the early 1900s. 
you can easily make the case that workers needed some representation, they needed some bargaining power, uh, the power structure was way off. I think then you could make a case that the pendulum swung uh, on the other side into the 50s, 60s, and 70s um, as, a, as a reaction to that, as that power structure got more powerful and began to take on its own um, institutional initiatives and, and momentum. Uh, if you look at the Irishman movie that came out, you can see that, you know, as portrayed in that movie, the unions are certainly uh, no angels <laughs> in comparison. It's hard to distinguish who's worse between the big business and the unions, which Dylan does himself in there. Um, so I, I agree with you that I think that's one of the things that, you know, probably um, pushed the business people into the outsourcing was not only, you know, the lower cost, but also the, ha the hassle of dealing with the unions and having someone that's powerful uh, on, on the other side of the negotiating table. I think part of the reason that, that maybe this, again, this song doesn't get the due maybe it deserves is that it i think overall and when i listen to it again i listen to both versions i haven't heard that that early one that you talked about which is almost like the the instrumental and stuff where he's the, the, i've listened to, obviously i've listened to the the album cut and then the one from the bootleg series is that it's it it's sort of sour it's sort of a sour song even bob's most downbeat songs i think have uh, a sense of like a, a slight lilt to them or a glint in his in his voice, if that makes any sense, that helps mm -hmm. modulate it. And I think the ones that are just downbeat through their entire run are the ones that I find to be my least favorite. Like, it's like to me, like uh, Ballad of Hollis Brown, you know, is just it, now I know that's the point. It's just right unending misery and that's the point of the song but it's like that doesn't make it super fun to listen to though dun, 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 dun. oh we're gonna take out the kids and shoot them because they're all starving to death have fun everybody right. you know like you know and i think might be that, that this song at least on the album version um it just comes across as again a little ranty and just kind of like you said like kind of angry old man you know yelling at clouds and it, it just makes you kind of go, oh, all right, that wasn't like super fun. And like you said, the, 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 the tune is so fun and raucous that you're maybe expecting something a little more like that. And then when it's just this guy talking about, you know, my dog colors from India, my flower pots from Pakistan, and uh, we're a woman, she's slave for sure. Bringing home 30 cents a day to a family of 12, you know, that's a lot of money to her. You're like, God, I feel like an asshole now. Like, you, know, you sit yeah. there and. I'm wearing this shirt that says made in Brazil on it. I, geez, thanks, Bob. I feel like a jerk. Yeah. So when I was looking through the lyrics here, it kind of dawned on me that the, the structure and flow is similar to Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. Wow. <laughs> so you remember in that one, you know, the woman's fault and, you know, then slowly gets into, uh, you know, uh, it's nobody's fault, and then it's uh, it, you know, it could be my fault, and that by the end, it's my own damn fault. Uh, when you look at the stanzas here, you know, the first one, he's just describing the situation. You know, shoes that come from Singapore, uh, flashlight from Taiwan, uh, tablecloth from Malaysia, belt buckles from the Amazon, a shirt comes the Philippines. Here, I love this part here. Then when you're listening to this too, and the guy drive is a Chevrolet and he takes a pause 
I always catch myself saying, aha, but that's really an American product, even though it sounds French. And then he comes right back with, it was put together down in Argentina by a guy making 30 cents a day. Like, yeah, I know it's not American. It's, it's not a foreign product, but I got gotcha. you. Because he's taking it another level here that even the American products are being made uh, overseas. And to me, that's kind of just describing the situation and kind of introducing foreign labor into the song. And then the next stanza is almost identical until you get to that last line when he says, you know, that's a lot of money to her. And he humanizes her Mm -hmm. in that line. And that's supposed to make you feel like an a-hole. And what I think is interesting here, if you look at North Country Blues, uh, from 1963, you know, this is 20 years later. Um, so he's talking about uh, it's much cheaper down in the South American town where the miners work almost for nothing. The phrasing there is almost, you know, indicting the miners like, you know, how dare they? They work almost for nothing stealing our jobs. It's less nuanced. When he says it here, you know, that's a lot of money to her. That's really the first introduction of conflict into this song because before i mean you can just pile on like yeah this is bullshit that all this stuff's made overseas and then you get to the well that's a lot of money to her Mm -hmm. and if you're someone you know who believes that a human being is a human being regardless of the country they live in they are afforded the same rights and liberties and and opportunities you know that's the conflict right there that you know the real world we live in introduces And so that second verse is really uh, extrapolating on the foreigner and the foreign labor and humanizing them. So now we get to the third verse, you know, and this is where he shifts the attack to the U.S. consumer himself or herself. This is a kind of a new person. You know, he says, you want to read the the lines? I won't steal your... No, you go ahead. You go ahead. Okay, well, this this is one of my favorites. And the delivery that he has on this one is just just the best. You know, a lot of people complaining that there is no work. I say, why you say that for when nothing you got is U.S. made? They don't make nothing here no more. You know, capitalism is above the law. It's say it don't count unless it sells. When it costs too much to build at home, you just build it cheaper someplace else. So in this stanza, you know, he he's basically hearing somebody saying, you know, there's there's no work. And he's like, well, yeah, that's because everything you buy comes from overseas, that you're part of the problem. Workers and consumers are basically two sides of the same coin. And you can't you know, outsource all the uh, consumption without it impacting labor. And you can't outsource all the labor without it impacting consumption. And again, that's a, that's a messy reality of, of business and economics, but it's nevertheless true. And then that uh, part where he gets about uh, capitalism. So there's nothing that's you know less popular than capitalism right now in certain circles. <laughs> and uh, you know he's saying it's above the law. And um, in the alternate version, he is trying to get the same sentiment across. He words it a little differently, and he says they call it religious capitalism under corporate command. It says nobody gets hired to do anything in some other land so the two things that stick out there i think is you know call it calling it religious capitalism is just you know taking it even a step farther and um you know putting those two things together again the intertextuality 
um, that exist all throughout infidels. Um, but the but the subtle change in the penultimate line, in the alternate version, it says nobody gets hired to do anything that can be done cheaper in some other land. That's basically saying that if there's cheaper was um, we'll go ahead and, and we'll do it. It's almost as if it's the big business that's making that decision in isolation. He changes it subtly in the, uh, in the official version. He says, when it costs too much to build it at home, you just build it cheaper someplace else. Mm. He doesn't exactly say, why does it cost too much? And here I think, you know, you can say it costs too much, meaning it costs more than big business wants it to, or it costs too much because the unions have overstepped and made too many demands and contributed to the push. And then that leads into the next stanza where he goes after the unions themselves. He says, well, that job he used to have, they gave it down to someone in El Salvador. He doesn't say who they is. Is it big business forcing it? Is it the unions agreeing to, uh, offshore some work to save some other jobs, um, both of which may be true. Uh, the unions are big business, friend, and they're going out like a dinosaur. So right here, he's equating the unions and bigness in uh, big business. Uh, your, your example about you know the out-of-balance power structures, these have become two power structures, and to Bob, it might as well just be one and the same. You just have you know two groups that are fighting and you know the individual individuals all across are the collateral damage here. Yeah, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Exactly, and then and then so here's one of my favorite parts of the song, just because it's almost everybody's least favorite part, <laughs> is they used to grow food in Kansas. Now they want to grow it on the moon and eat it raw. And and I think this is the verse where everybody just turns it off or hits skip, and they're like, you know, I think I and I is coming up pretty soon, so <laughs> I'm just. And and everybody hates the uh, the line in License to Kill about uh, the first step. Man's invented his doom. The first step was touching the moon. Um, and I think that one of the big themes going on with Bob right now is understanding uh, technology and the and the telecommunications, the microprocessor revolution that was being unearthed at this time, and the damage um, that he saw. Uh, it laying waste uh, in the country and the world that m- almost nobody else really saw, or certainly nobody uh, of his stature saw. And, um, you know, this is one of those things, you know, you look at what's going on today, you know, the richest person in the planet uh, is, is devoted to building rockets and talking about sustainable life on Mars and, and doing some of this stuff. You know, the, the first step was touching the moon and this, mm. and this person is going to buy Twitter. And I'm, and I'm not for or against that. I just think it's very interesting that um, this person who got his money uh, from SpaceX and his successes there and from, from Tesla um, is uh, potentially going to own uh, one of the world's largest methods of communication. And, you know, the second richest person in the world um, I don't know if he still is anymore. Uh, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, which you know controls the political message in the country. You know, my my wife was joking when we were um, going over this. She, God bless her soul, listened to Union Sundown, 
<laughs> more times than most people probably will in their lifetime. And she said, so my, my belt buckle's from the Amazon. I suppose if he wrote that today, he would just say everything's from Amazon. Right, yeah, I love that. <laughs> the, he inadvertently got a word that works just perfectly fine for 2022. Yeah, better to be lucky than good, huh? So, <laughs> But I remember a couple years ago, I read an article in the paper that some local jurisdiction uh, was trying to pass a law that was preventing people from planting their own gardens. And they wanted regulated seed purchases um, because they had some connection or they, well, they were saying they were concerned about um, uh, weeds getting in or, or um, um, invasive plants. Uh, but I remember reading that and just thinking, wow, uh, you know, someday your home garden is going to be against the law. And uh, he's prescient. And, uh, you know, one thing that really dawned on me when I was reading through this um, um, interview that he did with Kurt Loder in 1984, and then another one uh, he did in uh, July of 83 with Martin Keller from the Minneapolis City Pages, uh, is he was really concerned with uh, technology. And this was 1983. And <laughs> if you look at all of the um, periods in Bob's life, you can say that he was at the forefront of a lot of them and that he got to the point where he would make a change and then the rest of the music world would follow him. And then somewhere around, um, I think a lot of people think it was his religious period, he kind of lost that connection. But if you kind of look at what happened in the country with the Reagan revolution and the uh, kind of the rise of the religious right, I mean, he even presaged that movement a little as well. Um, and it's really at Infidels and into Empire Burlesque and some of these other songs in the 80s where people acknowledge and pretty much agree that he kind of lost his way. He lost his ability to set the tone or he lost his ability to predict where things were going to go. And I, and I kind of thought that too. And then when I started reading some of these things, it blew me away how relevant they were to what's going on in the world today. And what dawned on me, Rob, was that he didn't just, he didn't lose his ability to predict what was coming next. He just got better at it. <laughs> he, he said things in 1983 that have come to fruition today that we're dealing with. And it's sprinkled all throughout the infidel songs. And, and the, if you listen to it with fresh ears, um, you, know, you listen to a song like Joker Man, you know, that's, there's some aspects of that that are very relevant. Same with Neighborhood Bully. Same with Union Sundown. You know, what do we do with uh, globalization? What do we do with our dependency on Chinese factories uh, when we have a global pandemic? You know, is it is it right for us to pull everything back onshore and have all of these factories overseas that depend on our purchase orders go out of business? What happens to those families? You know, we're still grappling with some of those challenges and questions. And it amazes me that in 83, he was able to see farther than most of us could acknowledge. And I think what really happened was he just he went so far beyond what people could comprehend that they thought he was lost and, and they just kind of gave up on him. And I think infidels just fell flatter as a result of that. 
there's a line in the movie um, Moneyball. Have you ever seen Moneyball with uh, I have, Brad, yeah. Pitt? Brad Pitt? I love that movie. I think it's a terrific movie. And there's that scene near the end of the movie where after Billy Bean has, you know, they, they've lost and he's feeling kind of down. And he has that meeting with the, uh, the owner of the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. And then the guy is, and it's played by um, Arliss Howard. The actor is Arliss Howard. And he's talking to Billy Bean. And, you know, they're talking about that Billy was sort of this pioneer of using these, these stats-based, uh, you know, stuff to, to make these decisions as opposed to all being gut feelings. Anyway, he has this line where they kind of talk about that Billy really got roughed up by the, you know, the baseball cognoscenti for doing this. And the line is, he says, uh, he kind of waves that off and he says, well, you know, the first guy to go through the wall always gets bloodied. And then he pauses <laughs> and he goes, always. And I think about that a lot. I think about that. I, I think that's all a bunch of really interesting observations. And in that um, I think about, uh, again, kind of connecting it back to Bob. I think about, you know, Sinead O'Connor getting, you know, tearing up the, the picture of the Pope. And then a couple of days later getting booed at Bob's 30th anniversary concert. Yeah. And, you know, you look at her now and you go, well, she was right. She was absolutely she was, right. She was right. She was way ahead of the curve and so far ahead that it, people couldn't possibly understand where they were coming from. And then, then, then the audience turns on them a little bit. And that, again, I think that's a little bit what uh, happens, happens here. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the next verse where he says, democracy don't rule the world. You better get that in your head. This ru- world is ruled by violence. But I guess that's better left unsaid. I mean, good Lord. That's brilliant. I, I mean, mean, what are we... Look outside your window. You that, know? That, did, that didn't end in 1983. I yeah. mean, that's as relevant as anything else. And I, I actually think that that third line, this world is ruled by violence, is probably the most important line in Infidels. It, it encapsulates his very fundamental belief. You know, the law of the jungle and the sea are your only teachers. I mean, this, this is a world red in tooth and claw. Uh, he's harboring no illusions. Uh, you know, this is no uh, Woodstock Aquarian, Aquarian age, you know, uh, hippie wonderland where everything's, you know, this isn't Big Rock Candy Mountain he's talking <laughs> about here. Um, yeah. And and then to say, but I guess that's better left unsaid. It's just, it's just brilliant. I mean, the, the, sar- little, the, uh, the yeah. sarcasm that's in this song. Uh, you know, I love, and he's, he's a funny guy. We've talked about this before. Yeah. He's, he's hilarious. And to, to come out with something that uh, kind of puts it in your face a little bit, throws a little conflict at you that you maybe don't want to deal with, has a little sarcasm in there, and then just some brutal honesty. Um, that's great. I, I love that line. <laughs> you, you referencing in any way Margaritaville. First of all, that's impressive, <laughs> making that line. And then it makes me think, boy, it's a darn shame that Bob couldn't turn Union Sundown into a bunch of chain restaurants the way Jimmy Buffett managed to for Margaritaville. It would have been I love Union, it. Infidelsville. And you're like, wow, I can get a drink and, a, and I get a foot of pride and uh, <laughs> I get two men of pieces. Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. That'd be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome. I would eat there every day if it existed. Yeah. It would be, yeah. you know. <laughs> Is it just you today, sir? No, it'll be I and I. <laughs> <laughs> that would be, oh my God, uh, it would be simultaneously uh, hell and also awesome. Uh, yeah. If that, if that was the kind of thing. So just as, just as Jimmy Buffett then ends with the realization that, you know, it, it's my own damn fault. You know, Bob's moved on in this last verse from the unions 
to really saying like, look, this is humanity and the organizations and the institutions that are responsible for this. He, he name checks democracy. You know, he's already called out capitalism earlier. Um, you know, this world is ruled by violence. Um, and then the last part, when he's saying from the Broadway to the Milky Way, which again makes me think of Elon Musk, that's a lot of territory indeed. But the whole song here, the conflict he leaves you with, uh, comes up next. And he said, and a man's got to do what he has to do when he's got a hungry mouth to feed. Now, that is a statement that everybody can relate to. But what's brilliant about it is that you don't know which man he's talking about. Is it the foreigner? The foreign laborer? Is it the U.S. consumer? Is it the big businessman? Is it the union member? Or is it you know the president that he mentions in, uh, in the uh, alternate version? It's all of us. You know, we're all human, you know, and we all have to do what we're going to do when we have a hungry mouth to feed. And he's kind of saying like, listen, you can point fingers all you want, but you know, this is, this is the nature of thing. This world is ruled by violence because there's conflict and violence historically is the way that conflict is resolved, which, you know, and I, I want to, I'm trying really hard to stay within the confines of Union Sundown, but there's so much intertextuality here. You know, violence used to solve conflict is in direct you know, conflict with the notion of peace. And not only does he have a song on there about uh, man of peace, you know, the false peace, and, you know, being wary of people who are peddling peace, uh, which incidentally, a lot of people have a problem with that song too. Um, but in the interviews that I mentioned, he talks about peace in a way that only Bob Dylan can talk about it. And if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read a little bit here. Um, uh, the interviewer asked him uh, basically uh, if he still holds out hope for peace. And he, come, and he comes back and says, there's not going to be any peace. And the interviewer says, you don't think it's worth working for? And Bob says, no, it's just going to be a false peace. You can reload your rifle. And that moment when you're reloading it, that's peace. It may only last for a few years. And, uh, you know, it, and it gets a little, it gets a little uh, darker than I think a lot of people would like. But, uh, you know, he asks him, what if, what if someone genuinely is for peace? And he says, well, you can't be for peace and be global. It's just like that song, Man of Peace. But none of this matters if you believe in another world. If you believe in this world, you're stuck. You really don't have a chance. You'll go mad because you won't see the end of it. You may want to stick around, but you won't be able to. On another level, though, you will be able to see this world, and you'll look back and say, ah, that's what it was all about all the time. Wow, why didn't I get that? And when I think of infidels, you know, that's how Bob's viewing it. You know, Bob's got one foot in another dimension and another foot in this world uh, from his perspective, and he's, he's writing about this world and he's basically saying if people are only stuck in this world, they're really going to have trouble seeing how all these parts interplay and are interrelated and work. And it's only by, you know, acknowledging this other world he's talking about will you be able to see it clearly. I wonder whether he himself uh, has, you know, whether he still espouses these feelings. Uh, I mean, the, the song itself uh, has only been played live 30 times. 
from 86 to 92. You can find some performances of it on, on YouTube and stuff. Uh, but it's, so it's, it's a song that, uh, you know, obviously not completely abandoned in that, uh, you know, when he did it in 92, he played it every night uh, at the Pantages Theater in Los Angeles for something like 10 nights in a row. So he was, you know, that's obviously something that he was sort of concentrating on. But that's also, you know, 1992, we're talking 30 years ago at this point. You have to wonder, as he himself has aged and has, I mean, again, you know, look what you said at the beginning of the show about, you know, low is the poor fool who tries to get in Bob's head and guess what he's <laughs> thinking because, you know, none of us know. I'm mean, sure Bob doesn't even know sometimes. But you got to wonder, coming off of three records that were from that that went from very um heralded as in slow train coming to two records that were pretty much dismissed um you got to wonder if he had you know like a chip on his shoulder a little bit and you know you got to wonder if he he starts looking towards a greater a greater imagination of what of of life what there is out there because the thing that used to sustain him doesn't sustain him as much anymore, you know? Um, and you got to wonder if he was, cause I read those interviews and he does, he comes across as kind of cranky, you know, yeah. he just does come across that way. And he doesn't come across that way. Now when I read current interviews, I mean, he can be just as cutting, yeah. but he just doesn't have that same to me, that bitterness um, that he has to me, he has a more resigned to him. Of course, again, he, so he's seen a lot in the 30 years since then, as we all have, but I wonder whether he would still look at it this way. Now, certainly the line about democracy, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, evergreen, you know, it just were, I mean, that just fits in yeah. what we're living in right now. And you mentioned the line about the, um, the man in the white house. And we do want to talk a little bit about this, this alternate version. And there's a couple of uh, most of the songs the same, but then you've got big chunks of verses that were left out. And one of them is this line about, there's a man in a mask in the White House who's got no name or important ties. Just as long as he understands the shape of things to come, he can stay there till he dies. Got to be an invisible man, not a front man for some diseased cause. Certainly not a union man, an independent man, not a man tied to social laws. Woo! Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a whole world that, that's, in that yeah. verse right there. By the way, before we move on, I, I must point this out. Um, I was never able to find the lyrics to this alternate version. I knew that it existed, but I never could find it anywhere. And uh, these were provided for me by our, our dear departed friend, Tara Zook. And then in fact, this hmm. was the last conversation I ever had with her. Oh. Uh, she texted me these verses from her hospital bed because that's the wow. kind of goofball that she was. <laughs> she had time to do something like that. Uh, but the, yeah, the last message she and i shared was the verses to you <laughs> which i think somewhere in some way tara would appreciate but i mean that that verse is awesome but i can also see why i didn't make the song because i think it shoves us in this whole other direction that i could see him saying i don't want to go that far afield i want to kind of stay a little more focused yeah so to try to you know, address a lot of uh, things that you just brought up. You know, one with the live performances. It was 1992. Um, if you notice, he played it in the third slot, which eventually became the powerhouse all along the Watchtower slot for mm. so many years because it's such a driving song. Um, the, the other thing that's interesting about that time was the big political topic 
around that time was NAFTA. You know, mm. the, uh, you know, the giant sucking sound of all the jobs leaving the country and going to Mexico, Ross Perot, uh, jumping in um, on, on kind of that one issue that in the deficits costing uh, George Bush the presidency and Clinton coming on, which, you know, things only got worse uh, from that perspective between the Democrats and Republicans. Um, but I think that's probably why that was reintroduced to the set list um, at that point was NAFTA was coming on there and jobs and trade and off offshoring and all that stuff uh, came in. So I do think it's nine years after he wrote this, he still, you know, associated those thoughts with what was going on uh, in the country at that time. And I think politically uh, um, and economically, he still dropped things in there like working man's blues number, number two, you know, the, the buying power of the proletariat, proletariat, proletariat or however he pronounces it, the money's getting shallow and weak. Um, you know, so, so some of these things are still present with him um, even to this day. Um, and, and why I think that is connected then, you know, NAFTA was, you know, obviously something that was a political economic hybrid decision um, involving, you know, and influencing a presidency. And in this verse, when he's talking about a man in the mask in the White House, a lot of people will jump in and say, oh, it's Reagan. You know, he's taking shots at Reagan. He doesn't like Reagan. Nobody likes Reagan nowadays. Um, you know, and I, but I, I don't necessarily know that, um, that that's the case. I, I, I think, you know, just as uh, the president of the United States sometimes must have to stand naked was written before Nixon was president, but everybody associates that with Richard Nixon. Um, if you look at what's interesting here is, um, you know, he mentions certainly not a union man. And ironically, Ronald Reagan was the only U.S. president who was a card-carrying member of a union, the Screen Actors Guild. Screen Actors Guild, right? Yeah. And, but at that time, what was Reagan doing with unions? Famously, you know, firing the air traffic controllers and kind of uh, you know, shot across the bow there. So, I mean, there's a little, uh, a little conflict there as well between that line and, and just makes you think. You know, certainly not someone who's an independent man. And when he ends it, he says, not a man tied to social laws. And to me, that, you know, is in the same vein as, you know, someone's going to do what they have to do and they have a hungry mouth to feed or this world's ruled by violence or the, um, you know, the law of the jungle and the sea. Um, he's basically saying there just needs to be a puppet in the White House. You know, right. no name, yeah. no important ties. And, and where... I believe, and I'm, I'm totally putting words in his mouth or thoughts in his head, where he sees um, the big failure in society is who we look at to resolve these natural conflicts between economic, um, social, nation um, relationships. Um, it, it's in the pol uh, political arena. We look for our politicians to build a better society. Um, they, they can't just focus on economics and ignore, um, you know, families. And they can't just focus on healthcare and ignore uh, relations with foreign countries. They have to have, bring a balance of all those things into an in equilibrium. And that's their job. And it's a very difficult job. And for the most part, nobody thinks they do a good job of doing that.
But when you uh, ask Bob about, you know, what does he think of, of politics, you know, the arbiter of all these things, um, the people that are trying to hold it all together so society can be a nice place, he says, well, I think politics is an instrument of the devil. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, so he's tying it right there. Politics and the devil, um, you know, if you're expecting peace in a world ruled by violence and uh, the politics are the um, the manner in which you're going to um, bring peace, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. And I think that's ultimately, you know, the message of this album. And this is one aspect of that album is that, uh, you know, this is a ruthless world and mm. it's hard to survive in it. And I don't think he reaches that happy ending conclusion that you mentioned is absent in any of these songs that says it's, it's, it's all going to be okay. I think when you read these interviews, you, you don't get the sense from him that's all going to turn out fine or just relax. Everything will work itself out. He really doesn't um, see that happening in this world. He only sees that happening after Armageddon and the ushering in of the new world. <laughs> which Thanks, does, Bob. Which doesn't sit well with a lot of people. No, no. Uh, yeah, geez, Bob, can you just write some <laughs> jaunty pop tunes? Like, what are, you, what are you doing to me? I do like in that verse that the, that the president, the figure, um, is not the puppet master. He's just, he's the puppet. I yeah. think that's kind of an interesting inversion of what you would normally think about. Everyone likes to say, oh, the, you know, the guy in the White House, he's pulling all the strings. And you're like, no, he's just a puppet of greater forces. Um, I like uh, the shape of things to come. I mean, the, the phrase things to come is from an H.G. Wells book. Uh, and again, much like uh, the line about Amazon, where he meant it as one thing, and now it has a different relevance today. The two lines about uh, somebody staying in the White House till he dies. Well, we have somebody who is clearly trying to get back into the White House and just wants to stay there until he dies. Mm -hmm. uh, that way he can escape any of the consequences of his actions. And then not a man tied to social laws. Same guy. Same guy. A man not tied to any social laws or niceties or anything that we have considered to be social acceptability. And that's somebody not tied to so that's, you know, that we we handed him the keys to the kingdom. Uh and so it's once again, Bob is sort of ever north on this stuff. In fact, so north that he's you know, the rest of us are left behind and that does seem a little daunting. I like the alternate take. I think it's, again, these lines, there's other lines about drug dealers making big profit. They say times were tough for a while when the Russians bomb Las Vegas. They'll be on a <laughs> desert island. Holy shit. Uh, and then big manufacturers aren't starving, though. Their profits are down beyond belief. Got to have to send them a care package or make it food relief. There we go. Once again, talking about giving, you know, tax breaks to billionaires and things like that. Um, I like the alternate take, but I could see why he favored the the one that ended up on the album. It's a little more, it's a little more rocking. It's a little more, I dare I say, commercial. Not that Union Sunday was ever going to be a single, but it just has a little more kind of you know rock and roll energy to it. And I like that reverb you mentioned it at the top of the episode. I like that reverb that he put on it. Uh, that gives it an interesting sound that you didn't hear. But there's only a handful of songs that Bob's ever really done that, where he's kind of put that little echo in there to, to sort of give the vocal a slightly different sound. Um, I hate, I hate to correct you, Rob, but union sundown was actually released as a single. It was in Europe. Yes. With the oh, angel Europe. flying okay, okay. too close to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> of course. 
So where, only Bob you know, would have an indictment of U.S. globalization and trade policy and then release it as a single in Europe. In Europe, with a cover <laughs> as a B-side. I mean, I'm glad they put something rare. It's better than just, you know, sticking another album cut in there. But, oh, yeah, I didn't know that it was – I knew it wasn't in America, but I didn't I didn't know that it was ever released. Jeez, uh, in Europe, that's amazing. I wonder if it charted at all. Probably not. Uh, but we know some Bob songs chart overseas in ways they don't they don't hear but so yeah i mean it's it's again it's not a song that i'm going to go back to a whole lot because like i said it does feel just a little more sour than some of his other things suck songs like you know i find everything is broken to be really fun to listen to despite it being a list of things that suck this is just a little more like okay all right but i don't think it deserves the enmity that it has gotten over the years i mean i think like you've so eloquently stated it fits within the larger context it still doesn't make up for the fact that foot of pride and blind really mctell got taken oh. off of it uh but but you know you could see if he's trying to kind of do state of the world this is my state of the world record you could mm-hmm. see why this would this would be on there yeah and i there was definitely room for those two uh in addition to this one so yeah. that uh that's a story for another time but uh it definitely is his attempt, his grand attempt at a state of the world in 1983, which, you know, I think for you and me, people of our age, very interesting time, right? Given uh, our ages, you know, being teenagers at that time. And um, that's that's an exciting time for you. And the, and the technology telecommunication changes in the world that he is loathing. Uh, were exciting for us at the time. Video mm-hmm. games, cable TV, you know, which shows up in TV talking song. It, it's personal to me because I lived through it from one perspective. And I look back at Bob from the age he was at that time and see his perspective. It's very interesting for me to see how he viewed all that stuff and compare it to the perception of it I had. And now look at it, um, you know, as a man in his 40s now, looks at it and you know i see a similar issue with the state of the world and certainly couldn't create something like infidels but if i tried to describe the state of the world it would be a very similar picture to a lot of what's going on in infidels you know nothing has really changed if anything a lot of these things have gotten worse and some of the things that people thought he was a crank about like the uh, the technology and the touching the moon those issues are only really now becoming prevalent. Um, back in 83, you know, nobody, everyone's like, what is he talking about? But mm-hmm. you can, you can kind of make the link now to, you know, the state of technology kind of outpacing humanity's ability to use it wisely. Mm-hmm. The, uh, if you, I mentioned this in the episode that we discussed the record on, but the liner notes to world gone wrong, uh, read like, you know, um, uh, dispatches from the future. You yeah, know, he he talks about the insane world of entertainment blowing up in our faces, which is like, well, yeah, that's that's it now. Uh, he talks about uh, he says technology to blot out reality exists, but it's really expensive. When the cost comes down, watch out. Yeah, and you know you're like, good, you know, yeah, there it is again. You know, and those those liner notes are buried on you know, his full covers record that nobody, you know, only the diehards are kind of reading. But I mean, you could sort of see that he's still having those similar thoughts. So yeah, the guy is just plugged into something that the rest of us just either aren't plugged into, or if we are, we can't 
synthesize it in a way to turn it into art that he is able to do. And that's, of course, that's what makes him Bob Dylan. Yeah. And as I said earlier, I think he just got to the point where his ability to synthesize and look into the future got better and it, and he pushed it out and he, he kind of fast forwarded to where we are today back in 1983 and it was hard for people to appreciate it, which since you and I are optimists, um, <laughs> you know, what does the future hold for us um, that he foretold in Empire Burlesque or uh, Down in the Groove? We're knocked out loaded. <laughs> um, you know, if his, his ability to uh, see trends um, into the future has, has improved, you know, these albums he released after Infidels will probably still be appreciating them in more and better ways, um, you know, long into the future, which is pretty cool. Years from now, when the is the uh, the bootleg series volume twenty five, the Down in the Groove sessions comes out, and we're all I'll buy we all have it. To, I, I will buy it. Oh, I, of course, I'm going to buy it. Yeah, <laughs> are you kidding? Deluxe <laughs> edition, you know, yeah. uh, you know, Death is not the end. Spindle, I'll have it. Yeah, um, oh yeah, you know. we we laugh now, but you know, I'm the one who's going to be yeah downloading all seventeen versions yeah. of Ugliest Girl in the World, and you know, <laughs> parsing through them. The commemorative so, dead end street road sign that comes with the vinyl. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll put it up on the wall. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, Matt, I mean, uh, again, I apologize that it has taken so long to get you back on the show. We had a great discussion on, on handy dandy. And then this was another great discussion. You, again, I'm very, I'm very impressed by some of the thought that you bring to this and you come up with um, angles that I certainly have never considered. And that's part of the reason I do the show is to be able to, have these conversations. So thank you so much for, for w- being able to come back and talking about a song that again, you know, like, as I mentioned, hardly anybody ever asked for. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, Rob. Thank you uh, very much for having me on. And I just hope for people listening that uh, you give this one another spin and just um, try to understand where Bob was aiming with this and the, and the piece of the puzzle that uh, this song plays. Cause I think, I think it's uh, something that we can appreciate a little bit more uh, looking back. Absolutely. So, of course, I have to ask you the uh, exit interview question, which is uh, if there was any album that you could sit in on the sessions on, uh, what album would that be? Well, it would, it would be Infidels um, because it's, it, it's my favorite collection of songs. And I was so looking forward to Springtime in New York uh, coming out. And before they announced it was five discs and before they announced that it was you know more of a period piece, I was really hoping to have almost uh, like a complete view of all the foot of pride takes all 43 of them and (laughs) all the alternate takes and didn't get those. So that's still my, my Holy grail. So I would love to um, listen in on those sessions and just see the evolution of these songs. I I think just a a relatively minor song like union sundown, we have two versions of it. We see the evolution. Uh, It's enough for us to really talk about in depth, uh, for an hour and, and to think about hopefully afterwards. Um, but you know, what do all those versions of foot of pride, uh, the evolution from too late to foot of pride? What does that look like? You know, are there alternate lyrics for, um, blind Willie McTell? Um, you know, we've seen some of the Joker man lyrical variations down at uh, the Bob Dylan center. Um, they have eight different versions of the Joker man lyrics that they, that they published. And uh, to me, it's just, it's just an ocean that I can't wait to swim in someday. <laughs> it's a marvelous metaphor considering how much he spent uh, on a boat <laughs> writing that record. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's perfect. Perfect. So, uh, well, why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? 
Yeah, I'm on Twitter at MattSimo9 and uh, just love to talk about Bob Dylan as much as I can. And um, follow me if, uh, if you're interested in talking about Bob Dylan. I'll follow you back. And um, no topic is too esoteric for me. I'm a huge, uh, huge fan of Bob's, and my favorite period is the 80s. So, uh, if you're uh, um, insane like me, then <laughs> let's let's chat. I really can't wait to see what third song you come up with when you come back to <laughs> the show the third time. You're, this is from Handy Danny to Union Sundown is is kind of like from Broadway to the Milky Way. It really is in terms of the distance traveled. I have uh, my eyes on the prize. I'd love to be a f- member of the Five Timers Club and get the commemorative Pod right. Dylan satin jacket. So. <laughs> So we'll, so we'll be in touch. I have got to get. I've only seen photos of it because I didn't. I haven't been to the center yet. But man, I really want that satin jacket with the unicorn on it and the lady. Oh, wasn't it? Yeah. Allison Rapp was was drooling on it. I really. They've got to make that and just sell it to us. Come on, you got. Come on, Bob Dylan. Come on, Columbia Records. You know you're going to sell about a thousand of them immediately. You know. Yeah. What they, are you they doing? could really. They could take this commercialism to a whole other level if yeah. they uh, if they uh, tapped into the uh, the sickos like us. Hey, if Bob, you know, if, if Bob can record a new version of Blown on the Wind and sell it for a million dollars, whatever, I think can sell us a satin jacket for Pete's sakes. Yeah, so, when, uh, when you when you win that auction, make sure you invite me over to listen to it. So. I'll, I'll t- absolutely, I'll we'll have a, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll pull our money so that way I can make some of that back. So, well, of course, everybody, you can find back episodes of the show on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to Pod Dylan on any podcatcher of your choice, and then if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network. Let's go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast like these fine folks did. Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, George Doherty, Joaquin Meckel, Paul Ruther, and Superman's pal Henry Bernstein. I really appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. This is no import. We made this blouse. We belong to the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, and we have sewn our union label right in here. It tells you we're able to do what every American wants to do, have a job doing honest work at decent wages. When you see the union label, think of us making a living, making your clothes right here in America.